Hello everyone, my name is Stephanie. And I'm Clinton, and welcome to our podcast. Today, we're going to be talking to you guys about the lack of general political will in bringing about climate policy legislation in the United States and in the international sphere. Climate change is an issue that not only affects us presently in current day, but also will have great impacts on future generations. It is the action or the inaction of world leaders that will affect the lives of future generations. Professor Michael Oppenheimer of Princeton University, a professor of geosciences and international affairs, addresses the current state of international progression in successfully and effectively taking action to thwart the effects of climate change, specifically in efforts to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Is that we are way behind the eight ball. We're not doing enough to cut these emissions and bring the problem under control. And we're not doing enough to build our resilience to the inevitable impacts of climate change. In other words, we're doing very little to actually adapt to the risk. It's interesting, and some would even say a little nerve-wracking, that in present-day circumstances, there is such a lack of consensus regarding the climate crisis in general. We've seen the United States, a major leading world power, pull out of the climate agreement, but also a general lack of desire among developed and capable powers to ultimately take initiative to compromise or even be generally helpful in solving issues amongst divided interests. that there's such a lack of consensus to enact real and substantial climate change legislation. And Steph, you brought up the excellent point, or the well-known fact, that the United States has indeed formally withdrawn from the Paris Agreement. But the question is now, is there a way in which us, the citizens, can compel the legislature and executive to act to help circumvent this real issue? One way to think about it, by the way, I think is it's like a relay race where the three branches have, they each run part of the race and then they pass the baton of law on to the next branch. That was Dr. Michael Zuckert of Notre Dame University describing how the separation of powers functions. The separation of powers is based on independent yet collective actions of three branches of governance. These three branches of governance are first, the executive branch, second, the legislative branch, and third, the judiciary. The role of the Congress of the United States is to formulate the wording of laws and regulations for which the president is to sign. Congress is comprised of both the House of Representatives and the Senate, and these two houses act as a representation of the public at large. The second branch of governance 
in the separation of powers is the executive branch, which is led by the president. The role of the president is to assemble an executive government and sign laws created by Congress. These laws can be vetoed by the president. The president may also directly make laws prescribed by the constitution in a form of an executive order. Lastly, the judiciary has the role of interpreting the laws and assessing the constitutionality of laws made by both the president and the legislature and claims brought by citizens. Professor Bruce E. Kane from Stanford University discusses what he believes to be the most critical issue of climate change, which is the collective action problem. Be the critical issue. It's going to be the collective action problems that Mike talked about in the first time he introduced me, the collective action problems that we have to overcome. It's people that understand what needs to be done but don't want to make the sacrifices, don't see the urgency until it's really right on. There is also a principal agent and collective action problem presented by climate mitigation. The short-term costs and burden of responsibilities will ultimately be placed on developed countries, like the United States' citizens and consumers, while the long-term benefits will be felt globally by future generations. Dr. Sam Richards of Penn State University discusses the principal agent and collective action problem by referring to the tragedy of the commons. I think like, oh, this is human beings we're dealing with, the tragedy of the commons. I do not have a lot of faith that human beings acting on their own interests are going to address the climate change issue if it's really there and if it's coming at us. The private industrial sectors who will be more adversely economically affected by certain climate policies, often organized by means of collective action and aims of shaping the political regulatory process to better tailor to their set interests. This was seen in the U.S. when the United States House of Representatives passed an economy-wide emissions reduction target and emissions cap-and-trade program covering major emitters known as the Waxman-Markey Bill in 2009. Industrial trade coalitions vehemently opposed the bill, and evidence shows that the concerns of these industrial constituencies were reflected in the votes and negotiating positions of many members of the congressional debate regarding the Waxman-Markey Bill, and these coalitions also influenced the bill's failure to pass legislation. So Clinton, what actually allows the president to pull out of the climate agreement? Legal scholar Morlino Leonardo, in his article, What is a Good Democracy? states two prerequisites of a good democracy. These are firstly freedom and political equality. Leonardo goes on to state, that a good democracy is one that is first and foremost broadly legitimate and the regime is recognized and satisfied by most of its citizens. 
But with practices such as lobbying, which is conducted by rich and powerful special interest groups, which cater for only a select class of individuals, this democracy is deeply, deeply flawed. This is because lobbying affects which bills congressmen and congresswomen support and which bills the president signs. Such measures have left the executive branch and the legislative branch next to useless in enacting real and substantial climate change legislation. Such practices have been a major roadblock in the formation of real climate change legislation. Groups such as the Global Climate Alliance, which have used their money to directly influence policymaking, have made the democracy in the United States deeply flawed. The issue is more about power and politics than it is about law. It's about who makes decisions on key issues, who wields power and to what extent. It's about the legitimacy and community acceptance. It's rather a simple solution. The president doesn't believe in climate change. Congress don't want to act. So what is the whole fuss about the courts stepping in and enacting legislation to combat the climate crisis? Congress is the most egregious sin of judicial activists. That judges suppose that they can mould a better world from the bench rather than leaving it up to boring old democratic processes is the height of arrogance. The parliament's inaction may be deliberate or may reflect the will of the people seems not to matter to these judges. It was specifically designed back in 1913 to be independent from the three branches of government. Neither Congress nor the President can tell the Fed to raise, lower, or hold interest rates steady. Only the 12 people on the Fed's Monetary Policy Committee make that decision. Seven of those members, the Fed's governors, are appointed to 14-year terms to insulate them from the whims of elected officials. The other five rotate. The Fed has two missions, job creation and low inflation. In other words, to make the economy look good, no matter who is president. It wants Congress and the president to adopt pro-growth policies, approve budgets, fix the tax code, address the debt. The Fed has had to step in to prop up the U.S. economy because gridlock in Washington has left it the only game in town. Christine Romans explains how the central bank was designed specifically to be independent from the branches of government. The Federal Reserve was supposed to act in tandem with the government, not for the government. So that leaves the question, can we enact such a measure with climate change legislation? To create an independent body that has as its main objective enacting climate change legislation is entirely plausible and is seen today with regarding monetary policy in the United States with the Federal Reserve. If such an independent body was to be formed, it would require firstly a change in administration, but more importantly, a Congress that is willing to delegate such power and authority. As we near to the end of the episode, I would like to make the statement that political inaction is due to a multitude of factors that depend on location and country-specific institutions and legislative practices. Do you think, Clinton, that with such embedded nation-specific factors, the action on climate change needs to be addressed first at the national level before reaching consensus on the international level?
That's a great question, Steph. Well, I think individual countries should figure out how to implement their own climate change policies before they can implement such policies successfully on the international level. Once countries have a national consensus, it will be easier then to implement international policies. And that's all the time we have for today, folks. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Clinton. And thank you again for joining us on The The Climate Climate Debate. Debate.